I swear to fulfill, to the best of my ability and judgment, this covenant. I will respect the hard-won scientific gains of those physicians in whose steps I walk. And gladly share such knowledge as is mine with those who are to follow. I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures that are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. I will not be ashamed to say I know not, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. I will respect the privacy of my patients, for their problems are not disclosed to me that the world may know. Most especially must I tread with care in matters of life and death. If it is given me to save a life, all thanks. But it may also be within my power to take a life. This awesome responsibility must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty. Above all, I must not play at God. I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth, but a sick human being whose illness may affect the person's family and economic stability. My responsibility includes these related problems, if I am to care adequately for the sick. I will prevent disease whenever I can, for prevention is preferable to cure. I will remember that I remain a member of society with special obligations to all my fellow human beings, those sound of mind and body, as well as the infirm. If I do not violate this oath, May I enjoy life and art, respected while I live, and remembered with affection thereafter. May I always act so as to preserve the finest traditions of my calling, and may I long experience the joy of healing those who seek my help. You're listening to What's That Noise? The podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity however and whatever that means. Here's your host, Tommy. What you just heard is the Hippocratic Oath, a pledge made by physicians to uphold specific ethical standards. The oath dates back to classical Greece and is attributed to Hippocrates, who is often referred to as the father of medicine. Through summing up medical knowledge of previous schools before him, he prescribed teachings and practices for physicians. What makes these old documents so important today is how they remind us that medicine evolved as a delicate craft of blending the art of healing with the science of healing. I think in 2020 it is particularly easy to forget the centrality of this balance in a world that increasingly digitizes patient charts and clinical data. It is thus vitally important to recall this balance when we as humans must communicate medical issues and concerns, when the stakes are high, with people such as doctors who are inundated with the scientifically rigorous demands of their work. The oath you just heard was read by two incredibly intelligent and influential women who are very special guests on What's That Noise? The second reader is Dr. Sarah McLean. Sarah is an assistant professor in the departments of physiology and pharmacology as well as anatomy and cell biology, at Western University. Sarah has researched signaling pathways involved in non-small cell lung cancer and is a two-time award-winning educator who plays a vitally important role in training the next generation of physicians. Sarah is a particularly important guest on the show 
not only because she's a very close friend of mine, but because she has a lot of experience navigating that murky balance between the art and the science of medicine. In 2019, Sarah lost her dear father to cancer. It happened quickly, and Sarah was heavily depended upon to use her expertise to communicate to and between her doctor, her brothers, and her dear dad. The first voice you heard is a familiar one. Dr. Karen Reese Milton is a returning guest on this show. You might recall that Karen has spent most of her life as a bench scientist studying cancer and is now studying computer programming to bring the world of medical labs and the world of computer labs just a little bit closer in hopes of finding a cure for cancer. Karen is also a vitally important guest on the show for another reason as well. Just before Christmas of last year, Karen reached out and asked if we could do another episode together. And of course, I was elated. Karen expressed that she wanted to share something with me on the show. What she wrote in the email was highly detailed and completely foreign to me. Admittedly, I thought it pertained to something specific that she is studying at the CAC. and clearly didn't read it clearly enough. Fast forward to New Year's, which I spent with my wife, Christina, and our dear friend, Dr. Sarah McLean. And knowing that Sarah is an expert in medicine, I relayed some of the details from Karen's email to Sarah in hopes of getting some clarification. Sarah said, Tom, this is serious. You need to contact her. I don't think she has much time left. Karen has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. It is cancer, and it is extremely complicated. I'm honored that in today's episode, Sarah, Karen, and I will have a very difficult but exceptionally important conversation about quality versus quantity of life when given a terminal diagnosis. Between Sarah's struggles and having to communicate and relay information, and the complex array of struggles Karen has experienced in discussing cancer, as someone who is much, if not vastly, more educated than her own doctors, we find again that critical tension between the art and the science of medicine. We will hear from Sarah and Karen today how important it is for doctors to communicate not only directly, but proactively, so that the patient and their family can make informed, meaningful decisions when dealing with a terminal diagnosis. We will learn about the responsibility in treating patients as humans and not merely as charts, which plays an indispensably important role in helping patients establish control in the end of their lives. We will talk about time management at the end of life and how crucial it is to draw a line between time-demanding treatments that debilitate and bucket lists that liberate. You will notice that our chat is guided by the Hippocratic Oath. Our intention is not to interrogate the medical institution or its professionals, but to highlight how central the matter of quality versus quantity of life is in the balance between the art and the science of medicine. This balance and this matter come hand in hand, and they are things that we will all have to contend with at some point in our lives. And as you'll hear in our show today, it's anything but easy. So please accept my words here as a kind advisory to use your discretion. This is by far the most important episode I've ever done on the show, and it is the most important conversation I've ever had in my life. Please reference it as a guideline and use it to have more conversations. 
there are many people around us at all times who are ready and willing to help. For anyone suffering or anyone who knows someone suffering with familial adenomatous polyposis, the FAP registry, which is part of the Zane Cohen Center for Digestive Diseases at Mount Sinai Hospital, is a wonderfully supportive place to begin. If you live in the Kingston area, the University Hospital's Kingston Foundation Therapeutic Endoscopy Program has been a wonderful help to Karen as well. In the London region, Sarah encourages you to contact the London Regional Cancer Program. And I also encourage you to look online for nurses and therapists around you who have experience in palliative care, much like my old friend, Jane Dill, who runs Now Before You Go, who can help you explore your options, identify your goals, values, and wishes, and to assist you in communicating when given a terminal diagnosis. Web links for all of these services have been provided on our Podbean website. Thank you for listening. So just a little bit about where I'm coming from. So it would have been 96 when I was 29 that I found out that I had familial adenomatous polyposis, FAP. And how I found out about it, um, my brother called me and said, I have a new family doctor. He's very good. He just didn't take what the previous doctor said. He did full exam, full history. He said, oh, your dad died of colon cancer at 33. That's very young. We need to do some tests because it could be one of these inherited cancer syndromes. And he found out he went for colonoscopy and yet yeah, many polyps. He said, you have FAP. So my brother called me and said, Karen, uh, it's a 50% chance that you also have this condition. So you need to go to the doctor. A month later, my brother called me. Have you been, Karen? No, I've only been in Canada for two months. I have no healthcare coverage. I have to be here for three months. And I said, if I've waited 28 years, what does another month or two make? It doesn't make a lot of difference. So then I go to my family doctor and he organized for me to go to the hospital and have the test. And there's me thinking, 50% chance my brother has it. That means I don't. No, but it's 50% chance for everybody. So I found out I have FAP. So when I was 28 or 29, they removed my colon. And if I was lucky, that would have been the only problems I had with FAP. I just had to go to the doctor every six months because there's a little bit of the large intestine left to make sure that no other cancer has developed. And I did that for about 20 years. Of course, there's other problems you can develop in FAP. You can get cancer in the small intestine. So then I have to go have endoscopy to check on that. And for 20 years, they followed me. There was some issues, but nothing that couldn't be dealt with endoscopically. And then in 2016, a week after I get the phone call and say, oh, this time, Karen, it's not good. This time we found out that you have duodenal cancer. So in June of 2016, I had a Whipple surgery where they remove quite a, a lot. So part of the stomach, all of the duodenum, part of the pancreas, part of the gallbladder. At that time, after the surgery, all the lymph nodes were negative. So I thought, oh, this is good. We caught it early enough. So maybe surgery is all we need. Took a while to adapt with the GI issues after that. But within a few months, I was windsurfing and cycling again. So all was good. <laughs> but then the following year, they found out that the cancer had come back to the liver but it was just one isolated lesion. So I had a liver resection. It took me a little while to recover from that before I was windsurfing again, but we were. <laughs> and then I was good for two years. And then I think it was probably about this time last year, there was a mass that they found on my right side and they thought it was just um, a local recurrence when they did the liver 
biopsy before the liver resection. They seeded some cancer cells and they thought it was just a local recurrence and they could just remove it surgically. Did a PET scan to make sure and it lit up like a Christmas tree. So there was cancer everywhere. So they said, surgery is not an option for you. So they said, oh, but we can do chemotherapy. And they told me a little bit about it. And I said, well, I don't think we're going to be doing that. It's not specific. It's for colon cancer. It just kills rapidly dividing cells. I said, I have enough GI issues as it is. So I would like to make the best of the time that I have. For me, quality of life is more important than quantity. Like I would be going through six months of not feeling very well. I wouldn't be able to do much during that time. And I might never be able to do it. And you're telling me it might give me more time. Yeah, don't give me more time, but it's not the kind of time that I want. So it was probably, yeah. But then I found in May, I found out about some immunotherapy trials and I have a PhD in biochemistry. So I understand all the science and I went, that's potentially a cure. I'd like to give that a go. So last July, August, I tried that. Didn't work out too well for me. There was an overreaction. There was a inflammation and I wound up in the hospital. There was like a GI bleed. Uh, I was losing blood, but they stopped the trial drug, started the high dose steroids and I recovered from that. So right now I'm still on the very low dose. They're tapering the dose. So that didn't work out for me. So we're back to the no treatments. Um, we'll just relieve the symptoms. So I recently had like radiation, which has relieved the pain. In cancer, you get other things like you get uh, blood clots. I so back at the beginning of January, I was short of breath. Holy smokes, why can't I do this anymore? This is really hard. And they found there were clots in the lungs. So I am now having treatment for that. So I thought, yeah, I'm back to no treatments, but I am actually doing another trial this week, um, which is to stop new blood vessels forming when you have cancer because tumors need blood supply to grow. So we'll give that a go. It's a long shot. It might not work, but uh, we'll, we'll give it a go. But uh I feel that it's been a lot easier for me because I have a scientific background. So I can have a scientific discussion with my doctors and I can say, I like this approach. I don't like this approach, but I don't feel that that's an option for a lot of people. They don't understand what they're going through. They, they are told this is what we should do. And I'm not always sure that they totally understand what they're giving up. Like for, for them, if they had been told we have this chemotherapy option for you, I think they would have done it because they would have been under the impression it was a potential cure without being told, but this is what you're giving up. So for me, what I would have been giving up is right now, I was at that time, I was able to work. I was able to go to school. I was able to windsurf. I was able to cycle. Uh, I'm not going to give that up for something that's probably not going to work. So, yeah. Kind of in contrast to Karen, I was part of this whole cancer journey as like a third member. Um, and that a few years ago, uh, after I was just pregnant with my second daughter, um, my dad, uh, he came over to my house and on his forehead, it looked like somebody had taken a paintbrush and had kind of flicked a bunch of black paint on his head. And I, I'm a professor. Um, and I teach histology, which is the study of tissues. And when I looked at what his skin looked like, I said, dad, that looks really bad. Like you need to get that looked at immediately. I was worried about melanoma, um, which is a cancer of the melanocytes. And basically he went to a doctor. They initially said, oh, no, 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 it's fine. That's not what it is at all. Um, they were actually wrong. He went to a pathologist and so he had melanoma. Um, 
my dad had a, um, uh, what am I trying to say, a skin graft. So they removed that skin on his head, uh, basically cut it down to the bone, uh, more or less on his skull, got rid of it. Um, they did a test for his sentinel lymph nodes to see whether or not the cancer had spread. And at that point, we were really lucky. It had not metastasized anywhere else in the body. It was just on his head. So, you know, we counted our blessings. He had a skin graft. It looked pretty funny. Like he used to joke that um, at Halloween, he'd go as a zombie because it looked like half of his head was, you know, a little disformed. Some people would, you know, look at him and stuff, but he ended up getting a hairpiece. So all of that was well and good for a while. And um, my dad went on some maintenance therapy, some immunotherapy um, of interferon. And some people don't really respond well to that. But my dad responded pretty well. He, he did have to take some time off of work. Um, but really, considering um, how bad the melanoma looked initially, we considered ourselves pretty lucky. But then about this time last year, it was actually just before my birthday, um, my dad went in for a routine scan. And at this point, his physician just prior to this had said, you know, Bob, you're doing so great. I don't think we're going to have to worry about, um, you know, seeing you again. He went in for a routine scan and essentially they found uh, the melanoma everywhere. So by everywhere, I mean, it was in his brain in multiple spots. It was bilaterally in his lungs. So on both sides, um, there were some parts in his peritoneum and his gut as well. So he, he had it everywhere. So it was really challenging because my dad didn't feel sick. This is what he always kept saying. I don't feel sick. I don't feel any different. And my dad was a very smart man. Um, he's an engineer, but wasn't super health literate um, in some ways. And so relied on me to kind of translate a lot of what the physicians were saying. So initially, um, they were concerned about one large tumor that he had in his brain. And they very much wanted to do surgery on it. And my dad was very nervous about this. He didn't like the idea that part of his brain would be gone, as he said. Um, he made jokes about, you know, him losing his intellect, which none of that happened. But um, at the time, he was so concerned, he didn't want to do it. But the physicians said, look, if you don't have this craniotomy, if we don't remove this tumor in your brain, there's a very high likelihood you're going to have a seizure and you could die from that seizure. So he ended up having the craniotomy. So now he has two giant scars on his head, kind of on opposite sides, and he recovered pretty well from that. Um, but again, at this point, there's other tumors in his brain, there's tumors in his lungs, and so the physicians decided to put him on um, some immunotherapy drugs. And it was a combination drug that had shown pretty good promise um, in melanoma. And when I sat there with a physician and looked kind of at the... Um, the efficacy of the drugs. And I looked up a lot of its mechanism of action. So I have a PhD in physiology and I was interested to know how this worked. I did study uh, cancer biology, but more lung cancer than anything else. But when I looked into it, um, I didn't feel that the outcomes were perhaps as rosy as what um, my dad's oncologists were saying. But my dad very much wanted to take the drugs. He said, we're going to fight this. I can do this. I can, you know, do this for years, what have you. I'm, you know, McLean's don't give up. That's what his kind of attitude was. So he took the immunotherapy and it was an infusion. So he had to go to the, to the hospital and he sat there and, you know, it went okay. Um, at the time, uh, my former stepmom was taking care of him and, you know, she had said, oh, your dad's falling down a lot, Sarah. And I said, well, that's not that's weird. I don't think it should have much to do with balance. So I was worried about the tumors in his brain and 
other things. He called the cancer clinic. They said, no, he's probably just weak. Um, and then a few days later, still ha- kept having problems with falling. And I hadn't heard from my dad or my stepmom. So I called and my stepmom answered the phone and said, look, your dad can't get up off the floor. And I said, you need to call 911 right now. <laughs> like something is going on. That's a really weird adverse reaction. And what ended up happening is uh, my dad kind of had two things going on. He had a stroke and he had a pulmonary embolism. And initially, when he was taken to the hospital in the ambulance, they noted the pulmonary embolism because he was having a hard time breathing. Um, So those blood clots in the lungs, and they gave him a clot buster. But then what happened was because he had bleeding in his brain, um, that made the bleeding in his brain worse, made the blood thinner so that there was kind of an increased problem with the stroke. So my dad spent at least a month in the ICU. Um, He spent a long time in her stroke recovery unit afterwards and eventually gained back most of his function. Like he had a hard time walking around, but cognitively he was totally there. You could have a conversation with him. And, but he was very worried about having a stroke again. So I would accompany accompany him with all of his um, medical appointments. Uh, My stepmom was not uh, medically literate at all. Um, and was very religious as well. So they kind of put a lot of their faith in that. And that's, that was the approach that they took. But um, when my dad went to the oncologist, he's like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. You know, we'll, we'll give you another infusion of that same immunodrug. And, you know, I think we can do this and go from there. And I said, well, wait a minute. Like you gave him this infusion of this drug and he had a stroke a few days after. And I'm not saying that correlation is equal to causation, but you're telling me that there's no likelihood that those two events aren't related. And my dad was really scared about having another stroke and he really didn't want to have that as an option. And the physician at the time was like, well, you know, we can't say that we're not really sure, but I think we should probably treat this. And I said, look, my dad doesn't want to have another stroke. Uh, And I had brought along a journal article with me from the New England Journal of Medicine that said that with that combination therapy that my dad had, one of the potential adverse effects was um, a hemorrhagic stroke, that it was a bleed in the brain. And was it the most likely adverse outcome? No, but it was up there. And I said, look, he doesn't want this. They had, I felt they had not been honest with my dad about what his life expectancy was. He had melanoma throughout his body, in his brain. There's not really a good way to treat melanoma within the brain. Um, But it didn't seem like they had ever had that conversation with him. Uh, But me having my PhD in physiology and being, you know, quite science literate, I said to my brothers at the time when I found out that I'd spread everywhere, like, boys, I don't think we're going to have dad here for more than a year. Was it possible that we could have? Yes. Was it likely? No. So that's kind of my story and that I was trying to navigate this and give my dad guidance and advice. um, But at the same time, deal with my own grief about it and try and help him make good decisions that fell in line with his wishes. I.e. he was really scared to have the craniotomy. He didn't want to have another stroke. Eventually what ended up happening is they did not give him um, the immunotherapy. They were going to give him just kind of one type of drug. Uh, But my dad, um, fairly quickly got progressively worse just from the nature of the uh, tumors in his brain and went into the hospital and then and he didn't come out. So I guess my perspective from that I'm coming out with this is kind of the challenge of being scientifically literate and trying to advise somebody who isn't as much and not squashing their hope, 
but kind of balancing that realism versus idealism. It was a really, really hard year, but, you know, I'm on the other end of it now. to say, I know not, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. I will not be ashamed to say I know not, nor will I fail to ask my colleagues for help. It sounds like the two of you could be strong colleagues for some of these doctors that are in tough positions. And I, I, I think you're, if you have a patient who is educated in that field, they should be considered a colleague. And I do, I do find in my own experience, when I'm seeing a, a new doctor and they don't know about me, pretty soon they understand. So doctors that have been my doctor for many years know me as a person, they know my background and they value my input to the management of my healthcare. Like it was even at one point after I had surgery and they were considering, should I have chemo at this point? Oh, are patients allowed to sit in on the tumor review board? Like Karen knows, <laughs> Karen knows as much about this as many of the people who are sitting on the board. And in the end, it was decided, no, patients cannot sit on the tumor review board because you don't want emotion to be part of that decision. But then you have your physician mm. who knows you, who advocates for you. So that's kind of where we had it. Mm. But yeah, it was almost that. And, and my doctors that I've had for many years have felt that I have been involved a lot in the decisions. And because I understand the science. So I, I look back over the years, for example, and I've had FA, well, I was born with FAP, but I didn't know about it till my late twenties. And I don't, I just think that the first time, like before that, I hadn't spent much time in a hospital. And I always thought when you get sick, the doctors look after you. You don't have to do anything. You just sit back and they say, oh, you turn up for this appointment. We do this. And I learned very quickly once I had FAP that I have to be actively involved in this process. And because of that, I feel for that 20 years, my quality of life has been excellent. So I take the example of um, when I had my colon removed, um, within a year, there were masses in my abdomen and they thought it was another cancer. And I, being a PhD in biochemistry and do med health research, I looked at the literature and I, oh, I think these are desmoids. These are like benign tumors that don't migrate <laughs> anywhere, but they can cause a lot of damage. And um, a risk factor for developing them is if you've had a prior surgery. So I said to my surgeon, oh, are these desmoids? No, I don't think so. And then we go into the surgery and he ended up having to close me up and he couldn't remove them. And he said, they were desmoids and I couldn't, I couldn't remove them because they were wrapped up in the blood supply to your small intestine. So if I had removed them, you would have ended up with short bowel syndrome and all the problems that go with that. So then they passed me off to the oncologists who said, okay, I think we should do radiation of these tumors. And I said, well, I don't think so. The surgeon just told me that if he cuts them out, he destroys my blood supply. What do you think irradiating my tumors is going to do? I said, we won't be doing any radiation treatment. And so <laughs> when I found out I had FAP a year before that, um, they put me in touch with the familial um, 
cancer registry in Toronto. So if I need advice or referrals, I go to them. And I said, I would like you to send my records to Mount Sinai. And I would like the tumor review board there to review what we're going to do about my desmoids. And the first thing that came back was whatever you do, do not do radiation treatment. I was like, thank you very much. And, mm. but I'm thinking if I wasn't educated, they would have gone ahead and done radiation and done more harm than good. So it was at that point in time that I have to speak up if I don't think something is right. So that was the first example. And from that point on, I realized when you're sick, it's not a case of turning up at the doctors and they do things for you. You have to be actively involved. No, I agree a hundred percent, Karen, because as I was going through the stuff with my dad and being there and listening to everything, I was kind of like, I wasn't a fly on the wall. I don't know if initially, I don't think initially his oncologist knew how educated Mm -hmm. that I was. Um, my dad made a point of being like, this is my daughter, Dr. Sarah McLean. I was like, I'm not that kind of doctor. I have a PhD. Just let's settle down a bit there, dad. Um, but I found that I was interpreting a lot of information for him and that I think the physicians for the most point kind of did like the, the rose colored glasses. And I never understood if that was because that was my dad's wishes because he didn't want to know, or if they were trying to spare him some of that anguish um, of knowing that he was really unwell, even though he didn't feel quote unquote unwell. But when I started looking into literature after I had found out that his melanoma had uh, metastasized and had gone everywhere in his body, I knew that his actual uh, rate of survival was incredibly low. It would be, you know, for all intents and purposes, a miracle if he survived more than a year. But that was not the kind of language that the physicians had with him. We said, yeah, well, you know, Bob, we can fight this. We can do this. These are the different treatments. Um, Speaking of radiation, they uh, talked about whole brain radiation um, because they couldn't do, um, there's that or gamma knife, which is a little bit more targeted. Uh, They kind of briefly touched over some of the um, negatives associated with that, but whole brain radiation can be really detrimental and make you feel awful. And the brain fog that can go along with it, I really didn't think it would be something that my dad would be interested in. So I found that for the most part, the physicians did answer my dad's questions, but they didn't have that hard conversation with him. And me being very scientifically literate and taking a step back and being in all of these appointments, I started getting so frustrated um, because I felt like they were withholding that information. And again, I don't know if this was what my dad wanted or not, but at one point I took one of the physicians out in the hall and I said, look, I need you to be honest with me. I understand the science of this. I know what the statistics are. I need you to tell me what's the likelihood that my dad is going to be around. I've already lost my mom when I was 20. I'm like, I need to know how, what, what we're looking at here. And the physician said, well, yeah, it's, it's not good. But, you know, and then it threw in that kind of silver lining, but we're doing this and this and this and this and this. So it was really hard and they never had the, Bob, this is what you're looking at in terms of the next few months. I think it would have been really helpful, particularly since my dad had tumors in his brain. If somebody had said, you know, here are some of the things that you might expect that could change. And I was able to think about those and relay them to my brother, like, 
my dad's personality changed a little bit. He got really emotional. He would cry over very, you know, minute sort of things. He would, he had problems with his balance because again, it was affecting different regions in his brain. Um, and his, some of his cognition got a little bit fuzzy. I ended up being, you know, on part of his banking stuff and having to help him do that. My dad was a very proud man, so he didn't want me to have to help, but he, he couldn't remember his password. He couldn't remember these different things. So I don't know. I know a lot of my students want to go into medicine and I respect that. I wonder sometimes about the intent to treat versus kind of what Karen was saying before about that quality of life. And I have not been terminally ill. I don't know. I mean, I understand that for some people, the quantity versus quality, if you're scared, but I think that they really should have had more of a conversation with my dad about what the possible outcomes were and what he could have expected or what we as a family could have expected. And I think it would have made it a little bit easier. Um, In the last few weeks of my dad's life, when he was in the hospital, my brothers and I, you know, basically kept vigil at a side 24 hours a day, more or less, we took turns and we kind of came to terms with it then. But just having somebody kind of guide us through that process that this is what end of life care looks like. This is what you can expect. Um, it would have made the whole process a little bit easier, at least from the family perspective. Another important part of the Hippocratic Oath states that I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth, but a sick human being whose illness may affect the person's family and economic stability. But it's impossible that a physician does not also in some way deal with and treat the family as well. Between both of your experiences, there's a lot at stake in communication. And it makes me wonder about this question. When it comes to disclosing information, what position should the physician take? Where are the ethical boundaries? Where should they be? That's, you hit the nail on the head. I, it's hard from, from my perspective. And again, I think some people would want to be blissfully ignorant. I'm not sure if that was my dad's um, approach or not. Um, my dad and my stepmom were very religious, so they put a lot of faith in that um and i don't know if that's what led to part of that decision for them to not really listen to or ask more about what the prognosis was for my dad but my brothers and i my older brother is also um he's very bright he's an engineer my sister-in-law is a vet Uh, my younger brother is super bright like we wanted to know and i think it would have maybe changed how we approached some of those last few months with my dad before he really went downhill and started getting uh, more unwell. But is it fair for a physician to say to the family, well, look, you know, your dad is looking at maybe six months of life at best. Whereas if he had told that to my dad, my dad being, you know, my dad used to always say he was strong like ox, dumb like bull. He would, you know, very strong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was stubborn as all heck. And if the physician had said that to him, that, you know, Bob, like, it's not likely that you're going to be here. I don't know what my, how my dad would have taken that. So I understand the, the tough point of whether or not to disclose that. But I think at least maybe, maybe it, the onus should be on individuals to have some talks about end-of-life stuff with their family before actually getting there. Like, we, our family didn't do that. Now I think about it 
not all the time, but enough because of what I've been through. And I, I have a very clear idea of what I would want um, if I was facing the same thing that my dad did. So I don't know, Karen, maybe it's, is it a family thing? <laughs> or like, should the physician say? I'm not sure. What do you think? I, I think it should come from the physician. Like my own experience is they, they say to me, I like, it's nice to be able to plan. It's nice to know how long you have. So I just came out and said, so am I looking at months or am I looking at years? Because it's going to affect what I want to do. Like right now I can still go to school. I can still go to work. I can still do all my sports, windsurfing, cycling, skiing. And I would like to continue doing that. But it's like, if I, if I know I only have six months, I might decide I want to go on this big trip, but then Oh, I'm still here two or three years later. Uh, so, you know, there's other things I, I want in in my life. Um, but what what I, yeah, so they, I was told, yeah, we don't know how long you have, Karen. We cannot say that. All we can say is when it does go south, it's going to go south very quickly. So I think because I have a genetic condition and I've known since my late 20s that I am probably not going to live to be a little old lady. I think it has very much affected the way that I've chosen to live my life. And I don't wait till next year to do things. And I think I've been even more determined now since I had the terminal diagnosis. And I've decided I can still do these things right now. And I, I, but I must say, I'm only doing things that I want to do right now. So I'm working at CAC because I like working there. I like what they are trying to do. I think the cure for cancer is going to come from the likes of the work that's being done at CAC and Google. It's going to come from artificial intelligence. The way we've been trying to treat cancer for decades, it's not working. A new approach is needed. So I, w I would like to be there to see that through to the end, but I know that I'm just going to make a small contribution. But that is important to me. And also, I want to continue going to school because I need to develop my skills so that I can help a little bit more at CAC. But for my own mental health, I need to do my sports. Uh, so when I found out over 20 years ago that I have FAP, I could have all these health problems. I'm going to spend a lot of time having checkups at the hospital. The way I handle that is... I do sport at quite a high level. I do windsurfing, I do cycling, I do skiing. And I, it makes me feel if I can still do this, it's not that bad. Like a lot of people would handle this situation by drinking a lot or they would smoke. So I think this is a handy way for me to be able to do it. So it has affected the way I have responded to the treatments that they're offering me now. So if I can see that there's a potential, it's going to help me, I will go with it. So I did try the immunotherapy in the summer. I like the science behind it. I have a PhD in biochemistry, so I can understand that. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for me. I had an adverse reaction. But when they offered me the chemotherapy before that, I said, no, I don't want to do that. It's nonspecific. It's, I'm going to be sick for six months. They're there are things that I cannot do during that time and I might never be able to do them. And you're thinking, some people might say, you're asking a lot to be able to windsurf and cycle right now. But I'm saying that is how I have handled mentally the hand that I have been dealt. That's the way I do it. So 
for as long as I can, I'm going to try to remain physically active because that's how I handle this diagnosis. Can the two of you from your experiences shed a little bit more light about the kinds of things that you've seen doctors have to deal with, like hurdles and obstacles that might distract them from having the kind of conversations that you think they should be having with patients? I think it's very difficult because they want to fix you. They want to try to treat you. And I think when they have a patient come in and there's cancer everywhere and they can't fix you, they, they don't like that. They want to be able to fix you. So they seem to have this approach. We're going to give you this really toxic drug. We're just going to throw everything at it in the hopes that it's going to help. I think they should start thinking about when there isn't really a cure, they should offer that person the best quality of life that they have for the time that they have left. The conversation I've been having a lot with my doctors lately is, I come to this cancer center, you diagnose me with cancer, and it's like you want to me to be a full-time cancer patient. Mm -hmm. I said, if, if I'm spending all my time here, it's really bad for my psyche. I said, there are things, I, I don't want to be just a cancer patient. It is really important for me to do my work at the CAC, to go to school, to do my sports. And then I'm living, I'm like, just because when you get sick, the world does not stop just because you're sick. It's like I, I, it really hit me after I had the surgeries and they were major surgeries, but I could handle that. I would feel I was in a lot of pain. I had a lot of GI issues. I couldn't eat. Everybody around me was going to work. They were going to school. They were going on a bike ride and I couldn't do that, but I could handle it after a major surgery because I knew it was going to get better. So I would start walking, then I would start cycling and I would progressively start to do more things. But and now I'm in a different situation. I'm at the end of my life. And I know once it gets to the point where that pain gets really bad or the GI just get really bad, it's not going to get better this time. And they, they have to stop thinking, we are going to try and fix this. No, you just have to make my quality of life as good as it can be for as long as possible. Help with the management of the pain. Yes, yeah, some of the clinical trials that they'd offered me, yeah, I, I am trying them. I believe in the science behind that. But don't offer me something that... Really, there's no science behind it that is really going to help me. You're just going to make me feel real sick. And what I need for my mental health to keep me going, I don't want to be lying in bed feeling like I wish I was dead. I want to be able to go and do things. And that's kind of when I'm thinking about my dad and how he had the stroke after he had that combina combination immunotherapy. I mean, he was in the hospital for two months for the last few months of his life. That's what he was doing. And sometimes I wonder, you know, if the physician had said to him, like, look, here's, here's what the options are. We can treat this. I don't think anybody ever actually sat down and said, here's the likelihood that you're going to 100% get back to, you know, feeling like your normal self. Because the actual possibility of that was so slim. And I understand that they don't want to say that. But I wonder if my dad had been able to kind of fast forward in the future and see that he'd had, he would have a stroke after having this immunotherapy if he would have opted for that treatment. Because I don't know, I don't know if he would have, because frankly, like he said all the time, he didn't feel sick, right? Like he, he was lucky in that most of the uh, tumors were in the frontal right lobe of his brain. So um, because he's right-handed, it didn't really affect much of his day-to-day -day functioning. At least he didn't notice it. 
but they didn't have that conversation with him. And Karen, when you were saying that, you know, the world just keeps on going, even when, you know, you're sick with my dad, everything just kept on going, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm still paying for bills for his house for crying out loud right now. Like none of that stuff stops. I was still trying to figure all of that out. The world doesn't give you a break just because you're sick. No, They still expect the bills to be paid. Yeah. And maybe having a break and being able to just kind of take a step back and having those conversations with the physician about the quality versus quantity of life, no matter how hard it is. And I get that I, you know, I would, I had decided not to go into medicine for very specific reasons that I didn't want to have to have that burden. So I admire those that do um, have to deal with that on a really regular basis, but to just kind of take a step back and then thinking about, again, treating the whole person, you know, Bob, you're, you know, living on the farm was very important to you, being out in nature, doing your job. I mean, even when my dad was after his stroke, you know what he talked about the whole time? Was getting back to work. That's what gave his life meaning. And that's what he really enjoyed. And he didn't have that option. And I wish that we had been able to have maybe more honest conversations with him but it was so uncomfortable and I didn't know whether or not that was my place. And I struggled with this so much because I felt like I knew, I felt like I could see like the crystal ball. Like, obviously I can't predict the future, but I mean, really looking at the science and the statistics with what my dad had, the actual chance that he would survive was so slim, but in his head, that wasn't the case. He wasn't looking at, you know, weeks or months to live. He was looking, you know, he figured that he probably had at least two years, but nobody corrected him. And I wish they had, because I think that would have changed how we spent the last bit of time with him, but they didn't correct him. And I don't know if that's my place to do that, or I should have done that. I don't, I don't know. There is something of attention between doing medicine as a science than doing it as an art. This is something that's referenced in the Hippocratic Oath, and I find that really fascinating. I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. The art side is not explored very much, but it does seem to exist in the realm of ethics and communication and connecting with people through medicine as an occasion to talk about the things that give them quality of life. So the, the, the kind of information that I think somebody could use in order to balance the matter of quality versus quantity would indeed allow you to live differently as we've been hearing from you. It allows you to not put the things off that you really wanna do. We know that hospitals are not fun places to be in. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, but nor are these hard conversations. And there are people that would choose to live through some blissful ignorance. When should someone know that they're dying? And how should they know? Oh, so for my dad, he, um, he really didn't know until he was in the hospital and that, um, he wasn't coming out. Um, you know, the, he had been rushed to the hospital, um, by ambulance cause he was having a lot of problems standing up and just kind of like 
activities of daily living. He was really struggling with that. He was in an assisted living uh, facility at this point. I was helping him get around. He used to always joke that he was the youngest and hottest guy there because a lot of the other people were seniors. <laughs> so he thought he had a good chance with the ladies at the uh, the assisted living place. But um, he didn't know until I actually told him. I don't think the physician said that to him. And the physician certainly, you know, the oncologist that he had been working with all this time did not say that to him. I remember being in the hospital and my dad was in one of the pods. So he wasn't even in a room yet. And um, they were going to do another scan. It was just me there. My brothers don't live in the same uh, town as me. So I was kind of relaying all this information to them by phone. And I said, what you have to do another scan. You have to let me know, like, what are we looking at here? How much time does he have? And the physician said to me, like, look, you know, he's got days. And that just, took all the wind out of my sails and I was angry and I was relieved in a way as well as horrible as that sounds but to think that my dad wouldn't have to suffer from this anymore I was frustrated because I had taken him to the emerge no joke like the night before and they had discharged him they didn't think he was sick enough they thought that I was overreacting all of this other stuff and then the next day he can't he's you know can't even function so for my dad to find out, it was me. I was sitting in a room with him. He was kind of a little confused. He was a little in and out of consciousness. Like he could carry along with conversations. He had some morphine at this point. So um, he could follow along with us. And he just looked at me and said, Sarah, am I dying? And I said, yeah, dad, I'm sorry. You are. Um, Rob and Ryan and I are going to be here for you the whole time. But that's that's what's happening. And we're going to bring in some of the other family too. And I feel like if somebody had just said earlier, and I don't know if maybe my dad wouldn't have listened and maybe that would have been his choice to kind of spirit head on. It would have changed stuff. I maybe would have taken time off work um, instead of just taking to him, him to appointments, but taking time, a leave from the university so I could go and just hang out with him and soak stuff up, you know, and, listen to his jokes and get lost, you know, driving around. My dad used to think he was good at directions. He really wasn't. So we would <laughs> frequently end up in the middle of nowhere. But I didn't do that because we were just doing with the day-to-day, -day, he's the patient, we need to take him to this potential therapy, he has to go here. And I had two young, I have two young girls. Um, I was in a not great marriage. It was all that I could do to kind of manage that and at least my perspective is if I'm ever given that you know a condition that could potentially be terminal I would want to know at the soonest possible instance really <laughs> and I mean probably that's with some of my science literacy uh, the perspective of losing both of my parents so long or so young, like I joke that I'm having my midlife crisis now at 35 <laughs> because like my parents <laughs> didn't live past 60. So I may as well live it up right now, but it certainly changed how I approach and live my life. I got out of a horrible marriage uh, two weeks after my dad died and people were like, Oh, you shouldn't make these, you know, these snap decisions after something like that. And it was really losing my dad that made me realize, well, no life is short. I am not happy in this circumstance right now. I'm going to change it. I can change it. I have the means. Well, heck, I am going to change it. And it's really kind of changed how I've approached a lot of things. So I don't know. I think 
it would have been helpful if my dad had known earlier. It would have saved me some grief if it wasn't me that told him. Maybe there was some comfort in having me, a family member, tell him that he was dying versus having, you know, a physician with whom he had somewhat of a rapport but didn't have a particularly close relationship with. I don't know. From the family point of view, it would have helped my mental health and a lot of what I was struggling with if somebody had been more honest with us. Yeah, I think for me, personally, I wanted to know as soon as possible. And I think in a way I was kind of lucky because I have FAP. I spent a lot of time at the hospitals over the last 20 years. So I do have a relationship with my doctors. So it's not like somebody who is, I think of my, my husband's good friend. He passed away maybe five years ago and he was told at 60, you have pancreatic cancer and you're going to die. And for him, it was very hard to deal with because he had no time to come to terms with it. Whereas I have had time to come to terms with it. And I've been told, I was told by a physician that I have a relationship with that, yeah, this time we can't do anything about it. So for me, it was not a stranger or a doctor that I just met who was telling me this. But I can see where they're coming from in that they are, it is difficult to tell someone there's nothing we can do for you, that you are going to die. And they don't know how that patient is going to react. So it's, I, I look back over 20 years ago when I found out I had FAP. They don't know how people are going to react to getting a genetic diagnosis that you have this condition. So this is told to you by a genetic counselor. This person is trained in how to deliver bad news and how to respond depending on how the patient responds. So I guess a, a doctor would find they don't know what, if they don't have a relationship with the patient, they've, you know, it's not like me where I've had many years of a relationship. They don't know how that patient is going to respond. So in my case, I go, oh, I only have so much time left. I have to make the most of that time. And I'm just trying to put in as much as I get as much as I can. But other people would not take that news very well. They could go in a really depressed state. They might just stay at home and do nothing. They might not be able to handle it. So it's, I suppose, maybe, I think the patient does have the right to know, but the physician has to recognize how this person is responding to that news. Is it somebody like me who is going to make the most of the time they have left? Or is this person going to leave the hospital and they're so depressed, they're going to spend the rest of the time that they have left just locked up in their apartment. They don't want to see anybody. And if that's the response the patient's going to get, they need help. So it's like the physician can't cure that patient, but there are other things they can do for that patient who's given a terminal diagnosis. They can help them to come to terms with that diagnosis. They can maybe not be talking to a physician, but there are a lot of allied healthcare workers. They maybe need to talk to a social worker or uh, somebody in palliative care, somebody who can help them come to terms with that diagnosis, help them to manage their symptoms and make the most of the time that they have left. I'm getting a very striking and clear response from both of you that the the difficult question of when somebody should know should be immediate. Despite people who might have a predisposition to wanting to just ignore and just live on, 
there's something really interesting about being inside the box where you're a little bit disconnected from the reality outside and even inside of yourself. And from this feedback alone, I'm getting also a clear sense here that there are, there are some really important takeaways for people who are in your situation, Karen, for people that have been in Sarah's position or are currently in Sarah's position. And when we really think about it, we all know somebody who's in a bad, bad spot. What can we take away from the conversation in terms of the kinds of tools and points people should keep with them in order to, to breach these hard conversations as doctors? We'd mentioned earlier that, you know, maybe the onus should be on the doctor to start this. Karen, as far as I'm understanding, that was your position. I got a little bit of insight from Sarah when she was talking that maybe there should be some recognition of some distributed agency. You know, there are other people in the conversation like family members or friends or colleagues who have expertise and, and training in, in some of these things that should also step into the fray. But if you don't have any of those things, how do you start? Well, to be fair, if somebody doesn't have some of that additional support, I would say it does come down to the physician because that's that's who that person has, right? Who is working with them, their health. And if we go back to the Hippocratic Oath, what they're trying to do is treat the person, not the cancer, not the fever, right? So as challenging and hard as that is, I would say that one thing that we need to maybe focus on and, you know, me as an educator, I try and do this with my students, but thinking about the art side of medicine as well, right? A lot of my students are fantastically bright science students and get amazing grades and are just so bright. But I wonder, thinking and taking some more of a philosophical approach, how that might change somebody's um, experience with end-of-life care. So in terms of a toolkit, I, I guess I'm kind of throwing it back on the institutions to think about how we're preparing our students. And I could be, you know, slightly misinformed that there's already a lot of this going on. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I guess that's my two cents. And I think maybe that the students in medical school, they need to be educated. Yes, the best situation is that we can offer a cure. But there is, if there is no cure, there is still a lot that you can do for the patient. You shouldn't think that you're failing them if you can't fix them. There's, there's still a lot you can do in terms of making the end of that person's life meaningful. And yeah, they still are able to make happy memories. It's not all about spending all my time exactly. in the hospital. I'm still able to do all these other things. And they, they mustn't feel like they're failing because they can't fix the patient. There's still a lot you can do for them. And yeah, I, yeah, you're not failing. You're still helping. We had a palliative doctor when my dad was in the hospital, and he was so good. Like, I don't know if I can put into words how good he was. When we saw that he was on the rounds and he was coming around, my brothers and I all kind of would breathe a sigh of relief because, again, he couldn't fix my dad, and that was okay, and we understood that, but he could give us comfort going through that challenge. He could validate what we were feeling, he could ensure us that he was doing the best that he could, even though my dad was semi-conscious during some of these conversations. He never spoke over my dad. He never you know, talked as if my dad wasn't there. My dad was there, 
And we don't know how much he was listening or how much he attended to, but it was never as if he wasn't part of the conversation. And even just having that, having a physician recognize that that patient is still there and was still part of this. And for that short time that we had left with my dad, we wanted to make sure that he was involved. It did everything. I mean, that palliative physician, you know, I'm thinking about him and I'm tearing up because he was that good and it made such a difference. Did he save my dad's life? No, but he gave us such comfort in some of the worst times of our life just by being there and being honest and being reassuring and having those hard conversations and telling us that it was okay to be upset. I think we need more of that in medicine. I think we need to let ourselves be vulnerable. And that physician by saying, well, yeah, you know what? I don't, I can't fix this. You know, I don't know all the answers. I don't know how this is going to look, but I can do the best to make a good decision and help you guys through this. I think that was so important. I think one of the great challenges that our societies are dealing with today, particularly in the West, is this trend of sensitivity and a lack of willingness to engage in difficult subject matter. But we will all invariably end up in these situations. It's inevitable. Having these hard talks, having the hard experience, has a tremendous amount of meaningful, purposeful silver lining. And so I'm particularly humbled and grateful to both of you to have this conversation. It's frankly surreal to be taking such uh, art-oriented, philosophical, ethically-oriented insights from people who are so highly educated in the hard sciences. Not that those things don't come in hand in hand, but my point is simple. Most of the debate and the discourses on on cancer and on on health and well-being are dominated by data and metrics and analytics, by treating charts in order to give somebody as much time as possible without necessarily having access to the conversations about what um, fulfilled living looks like. I'd like to know what you both think informed consent means. I'm thinking of the two clinical trials that I did and I understood everything in that consent form, but I'm thinking someone without my background who is signing that form, I don't think they understand the science behind that. And they say, ask any questions you want, uh, but they could ask a lot of questions and still not understand the material. So are they really giving informed consent if they don't have a med? It's very difficult. And I... (laughs) I understand what I'm giving up for this treatment, what the potential chance of a cure is, but I'm not sure that somebody who is not of my background could give that informed consent. I often think of people uh, reading through privacy policies, and I recognize that none of them are lawyers. (laughs) Most of the time, they don't have a degree in legal studies. Here's informed consent. Click this box. You know everything that's going on. We've stated it all. I can't make sense of half of those policies, so I can fully well appreciate how much higher and more important the stakes are when you're signing off on a medical form inside of a hospital. So let's talk about these takes, takeaways and the things that we've missed. Sarah, let's start with you. What is there anything that we haven't touched on? Is there any final point or something that you would like to share with people as a point of advice? I think really that focusing on the relationships is 
important in medicine and is important in life. That's the biggest thing. Again, this past year, I joked with my friends, if anybody's listening, that my this past year was a dumpster fire in 2019 in my life with everything that went on. But you realize what relationships are meaningful to you when you're put in a really challenging situation. You are challenged to see what gives you purpose, gives you fulfillment, and what makes sense to you. And those relationships that I've had and curated both with some of my dad's um, various nurses on the different shifts, they made such a difference. Like I remember one time, and again, this is not talking about, oh, they gave my dad a really good drug. They did this. No, I was sleeping overnight with my dad and I really didn't want to leave his side because I was afraid he was going to pass if we had left him alone. So I was so hungry and I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh man, what am I going to do? And one of the nurses knew without even having to talk to me. And she brought me in a sandwich and a soup and a pudding and then the jello and a, like all of this stuff. And she's like, here, you stay here. I will feed you. And I said, well, I don't, I'm like, did you go to the cafeteria? Where did she get this from? She's like, don't even worry about it. You just stay and be here with your dad. And just that little bit of kindness. Yes. Knowing all the things and knowing, you know, what drugs to give and all that, that's important, but I don't know. I don't think that's the most important. So if you want to go into medicine, you better be able to be vulnerable and put aside any kind of ego that you have and get ready for some hard stuff. Cause that's at least in my experience, that's what a lot of it has been. For myself, I've had similar kind of relationships Things, little things like that happening from medical professionals. But I think what's been very important to me is I've also been very open with my friends and my family. And my friends know they cannot fix me. But the last year, I've learned that I have true friends. And they, they like last, I, I wanted one last windsurfing season. And they made sure I had one last windsurfing season and it was really good. Carol, it's windy. Let's go and surf it. <laughs> and, and other little things like that every time I have been in the hospital over the past year, I, I text my friends, they all come and visit me. They know they can't fix me, but just to be there and for us just to talk and we laugh, you know, it's, I hear from my sister stories about some people would tell people that they have this terminal diagnosis and somebody would walk across the street so that they don't have to walk by them and have a conversation with them. And my friends have not done that. And it's, I think they haven't treated me any differently apart from we're going to be doing things. And like well, last week I was in the hostel again in the emergency department and I was like, well, at least I'm not going to be admitted this time, but I'm going to be here many hours. And my friend texts me, you want some company? And she just comes and she sits with me for an hour or so when I'm in the hospital. And little things like that are just so important. Yeah. And initially when I had conversations with my husband and my friends, these hard conversations that they can't fix me and talking about, oh, now this has gone wrong. And it was very difficult at the beginning when we first, when I had the Whipple surgery three and a half years ago, and you have to go to the lawyer and you do the world, you do the living world, the power of attorney. And it, at the beginning, it was very hard conversations to have. But it becomes easier. Once you've started those conversations with your friends and your families and physicians, it's a lot easier. It's just having that first conversation. And 
I suppose then, and then the other thing you were saying about other things that maybe we haven't touched on that I think are very important when you're given a terminal diagnosis, the patient needs a sense of control. So I feel that I've been involved in many of the medical decisions. If I don't want a certain treatment, I don't have it. But if I want to explore a certain treatment, it's there. But I also think to have control at the end of your life is very important. So a conversation, I wasn't sure which doctor I would be talking to. Would it be my family doctor or one of the specialists? But it just happened to come up in a conversation with the family doctor. I went, you've approached this subject, so now we're going we're gonna to go into this. And it's like, I feel that we treat our pets better at the end of their life than we do our family and friends. And I think it's going to change now. There's a huge demographic time bomb that's about to help the healthcare system. And we're in a, the baby boom generation has made a lot of demands throughout their life and they're going to get what they want. But I know after I had these major surgeries, it was very hard. There was a lot of pain, a lot of GI issues, but I knew it was going to get better. But I know now, once I get to that stage this time, it isn't going to get any better. And it's at that point where, we say, okay, it's not going to get better. And this is where I've been talking to my physicians about MAID, which is medical assistance in dying. So I think when you're given a terminal diagnosis, so the first thing the doctor needs, if they can fix you, that's really good. If they can't fix you, then they need to make you as comfortable for as long as possible, your palliative care people, so that you can still do things that are important to you. But then there comes a point where it progresses to another level and basically your life is, I'm just sitting on the couch. I feel sick all the time. And that's the point where you start to think, I'm not going to get any better. Like That's where I, I think the hardest thing, I think of my, my husband and I think of my friends who had to go and see their father or their mother in the hospital when they're dying. And there's that two weeks where you go to the hospital and you have this vigil. You don't want them to be on their own. But when they do pass... People say, I'm really sorry for your loss. But then they say, but it was good because they weren't going to get better. They were in a lot of pain. There was a lot of suffering. And it's like when my, my husband went to see his dad and he was just starving to death at the end and they couldn't do anything about it. And that's where I think that's when the physicians should have the medical assistance in dying. So I have all that paperwork in order because I don't want my husband and my friends coming to the hospital for two weeks just to see that I'm dying. It's not going to get better. And at that point, I think that's where the physician can help you the most. <sighs> that was tough. Well, we've just had a moment here together, haven't we? <laughs> But it's interesting. I talked to my family physician and I talked to Gary. And when I came home after I'd had that conversation with my family doctor and I mentioned, I, I was really nervous about talking to my husband about it. And he said, oh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was wondering when I was going to bring this up. But he knows me that well that I don't want to be dying for two weeks when there comes that point. And my family doctor said it is a difficult conversation to have, but the patient and the family find it a lot easier because they have control. They know at the end that there's, yeah, you say, okay, this is it. Things aren't going to get any better and you have control and you go out with dignity. 
And this is something that's only the last few years has been possible. And people would go to the Netherlands and stuff to have this done. And yeah, I think the first responsibility of the physician when we're looking at the Hippocratic Oath is to heal the patient if they can, to fix the patient. If they can't, you make their quality of life as good as possible for as long as you can. And don't give them unrealistic expectations that we can fix this. Once you know you can't fix it, you're on it. Yeah. And then the final stage is you're deteriorating really quickly now. Do you really want to die slowly in a hospital? Like I have a DNR. So when the last few times when I've been in the hospital, we have this discussion and I say, this is nature's way of why would you bring me back when I have a terminal diagnosis? This is nature's way of giving me a peaceful way out. I think the problem we have with ethics, modern medicine has progressed to a point now where we can do a lot, but should we? It's, I think ethics has become more difficult now. We can, we can, we can fix or we can delay things. It's not, you're not fixing it, but you're delaying the inevitable. Should we be doing that now? Yeah. The only thing I would say, and I had to say this to my family and my friends, yes, it, it sucks that, yeah, I'm only in my early 50s and it's all over. But then I say, I think I have done a lot more in 50 years than a lot of people who live to be 80 or 90 because I've known for 20 years that I have this condition and I make every moment count. So I said, don't be sad that I'm not here anymore. Just think of the times that we had that were really good. People don't live forever, so, you know. Thank you, Karen. You're a very brave woman, both of you. I really am at a complete loss for words. And uh, I have the difficult responsibility here of um, uh, saying I I think we've captured a lot. And um, it's important to me that both of you feel and understand that I'm committed to getting these messages out in the most effective and meaningful way possible. That being said, I don't want to cut people off. I'm also looking at the the time, and I see that it's twelve twenty, and Sarah's kids are going. Oh, they're nuts! They're upstairs right now, and they're. Pro- I'm probably gonna have to bribe them with McDonald's, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about quality of life stuff for them. That's like a that's like great McDonald's. quality of life. We go and get McDonald's, and I can go run around, Mom. <laughs> Even though you're on the, on this podcast thing for an hour or whatever. No, they're that's, a, that's a fair a- trade for them. Can you I grab me a happy meal? Good, I think. Yeah. I could yeah. grab you a happy meal. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I ship it to Kingston? <laughs> <laughs> It'll probably be pretty yeah. gross by the time it gets there. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, Don't hesitate to get in touch with Derek and Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. And until next time, keep listening to the noise.
I'm, uh, I am probably gonna have to go though, guys, because my kids are probably destroying something upstairs. And if they haven't got into my makeup, they will get into my makeup. Oh. So that's, that could be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mommy, I'm beautiful. Like, no, yeah. you're not. <laughs> yeah, you look great.